1: And
0: speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everyone? It's Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to The Art of Being Well. I am a leading functional medicine expert. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book, and The Inflammation Spectrum, which is newly in paperback, and Ketotarian. If you wanna learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, the books, and there's lots of free resources there for you as well, you can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. All right, let's get to today's wonderful guest. Her name is Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Sarah Gottfried, MD, is a hormone expert, a Harvard-educated physician scientist, and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Sydney Kimmel Medical College, Thomas Jefferson University. She is the New York Times bestselling author of many books. You all are going to learn so much from Dr. Gottfried. She is a brilliant human being. And stay tuned through the entire conversation because at the end, I'll answer another one of your burning health questions in an Ask Me Anything. All right, this is Dr. Sarah Godfrey's Art of Being Well. Dr. Sarah Godfrey, this is an exciting moment for me. I love geeking out with you and I know the pod listeners are gonna love this as well.
1: Dr. Will Cole, I'm so excited to be talking to you again. Yes, yay, let's do it.
0: <laughs> okay, we can be informal now. Sarah and Will, we're good. Yeah, good. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's jump right into it. This book's amazing. Your work is legendary. And I've been such a super fan of yours for a long time. Let's get right into hormones. You're seeing patients full time. I am as well. Like we get to see the on the ground stuff. So this isn't just pontification in a book. This is books born out of a lot of clinical experience. So what are the top hormonal problems that you're seeing really impact how people feel? And then how does it make people feel just to like bring it home to like real life for for, for the average person?
1: Well, I see both men and women. I would say the the top hormone imbalances are cortisol, high, low combination of the two, thyroid issues, estrogen dominance, which you can see in both men and women. I even see it in some of my pro athletes. And then, you know, there's a few other hormones that I think are they get less playtime, but they're so essential. And I would say those are insulin testosterone, and growth hormone. So that's what I'm seeing, you know, kind of boots on the ground. What I would say is that when I first started doing functional medicine about 25 years ago, I was so focused on cortisol. I was so focused on it because I felt like so many people had issues with it. And I want to hear about your experience too, Will, with with cortisol, with, you know, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis management. And, you know, what I'm seeing increasingly is that people are not metabolically healthy. I feel like the pandemic has really brought that to the forefront because I think the core of why people struggle so much with the pandemic is that we know 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And that is just a staggering statistic, right? To take in. So that's what I tend to see. You asked about, you know, what are the symptoms that map with these conditions? With cortisol, I would say it's it relates to energy. So, fatigue, feeling tired but wired, that's kind of the classic symptom with high cortisol. High cortisol is also a marker of depression. We see that in 50% of people with depression, which is also increased during the pandemic. It's a suicide marker, belly fat. And then on the low side, once people have kind of more of a burned out picture, What we see is more autoimmune conditions. We see fibromyalgia. We see more inflammatory response, kind of an immune system that's out of balance. With thyroid, the classic symptoms are hair loss, fatigue, weight gain, kind of a generalized puffiness, more inflammation, higher cholesterol, cold intolerance, heat intolerance, like cold hands, cold feet, constipation, estrogen dominance. I mean, that list is long as you know. (laughs) Breast tenderness, endometriosis, fibroids, moodiness, mood swings, irritability. Those are some of the classic symptoms. And then we can, I'm hoping we're going to talk about insulin and growth hormone and and testosterone too.
0: Yeah, let's go there. But before we go into into the insulin, I, I just maybe, and this is a big question, why are we seeing so many hormonal problems that just what are the top reasons that you think?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, my answer a while ago was probably, you know, endocrine disruptors. I think we're exposed to so many toxins. I feel like our food system has changed so completely. Mm -hmm. The food that your great-grandparents ate, my great-grandparents ate, is very different than what we're eating now. So the ultra-processed food, I think, has really affected our hormones. Food provides the backbone for so many of the hormones that we make, and certainly it regulates insulin. So I think those are the two main drivers. And then more on the you know, kind of the mind-body side of things, I would say it's chronic stress. I mean, we know that stress has been increasing before the pandemic, and mm-hmm. we know that women perceive higher stress than men. So I think stress is definitely part of the equation. And then I think there's also some existential factors. If you look at the polarization that we have, In the U.S. right now, especially, I think we see it globally, but especially in the U.S., it just breaks my heart sometimes to see the divisiveness and, frankly, the trauma of the pandemic. So I would say trauma is another huge category, whether that's adverse childhood experiences or, you know, almost the somewhat daily trauma that we experience through a crisis like the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I'm probably missing a few things. Do you want to add anything to that list, Will?
0: No, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. That's all the things that I would say are the top drivers of it. It's a confluence of factors, right? And for some people, it's this piece of the puzzle is bigger. For the next person, it's another piece of the puzzle. But yeah, those are the things that typically I would say when you're talking to somebody and get to know a patient and start tracking their progress. These are the things we have to address, and some of these bigger one like bigger components of it it's, I always say it's easier it's easier to say like these foods are gonna really drive inflammation and mess up your hormones over time. It's a lot more insidious and and difficult uh, to say, well, don't have that stress, don't have that shame, don't have that trauma. Uh, that's some deep work that people have to get into. So what are? I think people don't give that, that topic of stress and shame and trauma enough attention. You touched upon it, but what are some of the maybe patient stories that you, you've seen the true power and gravity that these non-physical things, the mental, emotional things impact the physical?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question. So, you know, one of the patients that comes to mind is uh, a woman who's actually in the new book who came to me, she's a, a pediatrician. And she came to me because she had weight gain. And so she was really unhappy with what she weighed. Uh, she had a history of endometriosis and wanted to lose weight. So she heard me talking about metabolic health. And I was, uh, she came to a lecture where I was talking about continuous glucose monitoring. Hopefully, we'll geek out over that in a moment. And so she came to me with kind of this batch of symptoms related to weight. And I think weight in many ways is such a poor reflection of metabolic health. You just can't tell from looking at someone on the outside what's going on on in the inside with all their biochemical processes, which is really the definition of metabolism. So she came to me with this issue and we started to, you know, as we do in functional and precision medicine, we started to decode some of these messages. We found that her cholesterol, her lipids were... Frankly, a hot mess. We found that she had glucose issues that needed to be addressed. She had a high inflammatory tone, so high sensitivity, C reactive protein was elevated, as well as homocysteine and some of the other biomarkers of inflammation that we measure. And so, with a lot of these patients, what I find is that the initial work is checking labs, you know, taking the patient's story, understanding things like. I do an adverse childhood experience score on all of my patients. And then as we start to put these pieces together, as the patient starts to feel better, as you come up with a protocol, that's where we really get under the hood. And we start looking at you know, her moodiness, her irritability, how she wasn't so happy practicing in conventional medicine. And we start to unwind those pieces and come up with You know, how are we going to deal with some of these past traumas? You know, pretty much everyone I know that practices medicine has some trauma from their medical training. And so that's the work that I see. I'm really interested in both of those parts of the spectrum, you know, kind of that initial functional medicine work, but then also this deeper, more layered, more nuanced work that often can take six months, 12 months or longer to really understand some of these root causes that run very deep and may not even be part of that person's consciousness or awareness. And it certainly wasn't part of what this woman brought to me Mm -hmm. initially.
0: Yeah. It's always the things when you're looking at application or health history forum and the holding space for somebody and like the follow-up questions to dig deeper. Those are the things that at first people are thinking, why are you asking this question? Like, what's, what's the relevance of this? I came in for hormones. Why are you talking to me about my childhood? Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's so, but we uncover so much and I, I'm sure you see the same thing that I see tears almost in every consultation because that's the work we have to do to really get to the roots of these things that are for many people, the inception of it at least began to some degree very early on.
1: Well, well, you're getting me a bit misty just talking about this because, you know, there's a way that I think functional medicine is held as kind of this very lab intensive, very data collection focused way of working. But I, I think that doesn't integrate the other part of functional medicine, which is really looking at function of the whole being. So not just, okay, what's your cortisol? Let's raise it. Let's lower it. Let's get it back into homeostasis. But it's, it's really looking at these, what we call antecedents, mediators, and triggers, these, these root causes that really lead to people sometimes feeling better when you start some of those basic protocols and then backsliding a bit. And so the more that you have this complete picture and you go deeper and you really have that as you said, holding space for the healing that needs to happen on the terms of the patient, that's where you really get the transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Have you heard of Way before? It's spelt O-U-A-I. This brand has a cult following. I keep hearing about it from patients as well. Way is a multitasking powerhouse. It does it all. It hydrates your hair detangles, fights frizz, and even acts as a heat protectant. For protection from heat, dryness, and frizz, the way to healthier hair is Way's best-selling leave-in conditioner. Say goodbye to frizz, tangles, flyaways, and breakage for all hair types. It protects hair from heat up to 450 degrees, and it's scented with north Bondi, a floral fragrance with notes of bergamot, violet, and white musk. It's color safe and cruelty free. Way as a brand also leaves out sulfates, parabens, phthalates, gluten, and more. Discover a new way of life with the leave in conditioner from Way. Go to theway.com and use code WILLCOLE to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's 15% off your entire order at dot com. That's theway.com and use code WILLCOL for that 15% off. Our next partner has a product I've loved for years and my patients really love it as well. And that is Athletic Greens. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus throughout the day, and aging, all the things. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free. It also contains less than one gram of sugar with no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting really good. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop. That's all you have to do. One scoop in a cup of water every day. That's all. To make it really easy for you, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D. I have to say, when I'm looking at labs for patients, vitamin D deficiency is so ubiquitous. And you get a whole year supply when you get in on this deal. Because they're going to give you one year supply of vitamin D and also five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash cole. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Will Cole to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
1: Life is all about those pivotal moments, those big life changes when we ask ourselves, why didn't somebody tell me this? I'm TV host and journalist, Abby Huntsman. My best pal, comedy writer and media producer, Lauren Leeds and I are going to bring you conversations with some of the most impactful people of our time to learn their life lessons will pull back the curtain on their biggest transitions, how their reality is probably far less perfect than it might appear. And of course, what they wish somebody had told them back when. Check out I Wish Somebody Told Me anywhere you listen to podcasts. We release new episodes every week.
0: I want to go back to what we talked about earlier about insulin. You're right. It's the lesser known hormone. People don't even maybe the common person may not even think of insulin as a hormone because it's. they think estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, thyroid. But insulin is every cell of our body needs insulin. So what's going on with the, the insulin secretion and communication in so many people? And how is it really wrecking how they feel?
1: Yeah, insulin is... I, I think there's certain hormones that are kind of like keystone hormones. You know, we use that concept in the gut. We use it in a few other places with species... I would say insulin and cortisol, maybe thyroid, are some of those keystone hormones because they modulate and they crosstalk with so many other hormones. So what does insulin do? It's The simple version is that it's a hormone that regulates your glucose levels in your blood. So it's it binds to a receptor on cells and it allows glucose to flow into a cell. The way I think of it is that it's kind of like a bouncer at a club where... It's a bouncer standing outside of the club deciding, you know, whether people go in, those people being glucose. And if the bouncer's not working, like if the bouncer's on their phone or they're just not doing the work that they should be doing, then you've got all this glucose kind of running around the streets. Like glucose can become elevated. And it's just not working the way that it's it's meant to be working. So what do you feel when that happens? The symptoms are somewhat vague. They're things like more fat storage, especially belly fat you can feel brain fog. I think that's a really common symptom when you have insulin resistance, because you can have it in the rest of your body, like peripherally, but you can also have some issues in the brain. And that's where I think the brain fog comes in. And a lot of people, I think just adapt to brain fog. They just sort of put up with it like, Oh, is this the new normal? And I would say it's not like, let's do something about it. It usually has something to do with barrier integrity you know, in the gut, as well as in the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. There's other symptoms, too, many signs. So what we look for with insulin, once it starts to become, once cells become numb to insulin, that bouncer's not working. Insulin tends to climb, usually first with postprandial insulin, not always first with fasting insulin. So we see fasting insulin start to rise above six. We see postprandial insulin start to rise And then glucose gets involved once insulin has kind of been a problem, usually for a few years. And that's where you get an elevated fasting glucose, maybe an elevated oral glucose challenge test, the two-hour glucose load, and an elevated hemoglobin A1C. And that's where I'm really focused because I know as a bioengineer, the sooner that we intervene in that process, the better you are at returning to homeostasis, to that euglycemic, like normal glucose, normal insulin status, yeah. which is really what we want. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned some labs, uh, gl- serum glucose, fasting glucose, A1C, and you, you, we touched on CGMs. Can you talk about continuous glucose monitors and how people can maybe use that wearable device uh, to learn more about their blood sugar and insulin?
1: Yeah, I love continuous glucose monitors. So I've been using them for about four years now, in my practice, as well as on myself. And what we know is that, you know, certainly they're life-saving for type 1 diabetics. They're very helpful for type 2 diabetics, but a lot of people don't realize how so many of us live along the spectrum where we don't maybe have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, but we're kind of heading in that direction. And so the continuous glucose monitor, what I've learned from my, my research at Thomas Jefferson is that It's one of the earliest changes that you can detect where you might find, for instance, that if you, once you go to your doctor and get a fasting glucose in the blood and maybe a hemoglobin A1C, that is like a snapshot of the needle in the vein for about 10 seconds. It doesn't tell us this bigger picture of how you respond when you eat an apple or how you respond when you have sweet potato fries. And so that kind of detail allows you to really personalize your diet. I was shocked when I first started wearing a continuous glucose monitor that I was pre-diabetic. I had certain days, especially when I was more, you know, starting, I sometimes start patient care at seven o'clock in the morning. And on those days, my fasting glucose was like 105, which is the pre-diabetic range. But even the normal range that we use for glucose, you know, what I was taught was 70 to 99 is normal glucose. And I just want to call BS on that because we know that you, the more your fasting insulin is above 85, 90, you are increasingly becoming insulin resistant. You're becoming numb to that insulin signal. Your bouncer isn't working. So I'm a big fan of the continuous glucose monitor. I use it in pro athletes. I use it in my, uh, you know, all different types of patients And it just really allows you to personalize diet. So I would say that's one of the markers that really gives us the best information about metabolic health on Mm -hmm. kind of a real life scale.
0: Got it. Another hormone that you talk about in the book is testosterone. And I, we know, like most people, there's a lot of, there's not enough information around that either because women think it's just a, a guy thing. And why do they have to worry about testosterone? they have normally not even tested for in women. Um, low T, the conversation's always men. So for women, what's the role that testosterone plays for their health?
1: Testosterone is essential. You know, it's, you're right, it's known as a male hormone. But the truth is for women, it is the most abundant hormone that we make. And I, I think that's that's such an important point. If you learn nothing else today from this podcast, I really want you to take that in. Because if you look at the levels you know, in the blood of all of these hormones, testosterone is the number one hormone in both men and women. So women, it's true, we've got about tenfold less than men but we're still exquisitely sensitive to it. So many of the things that it does in the male body, it also does in the female body. So muscle mass, that feeling of vigor, confidence, agency, it's really important for depression and anxiety, especially in men. It's more proven in men because the research is much more detailed in men. But it's also, you know, it's on a more subtle level. It's involved in sex drive. It's involved in risk-taking. And what I see with testosterone that I think is so important is there's some men and women who start to decline at an accelerated clip beginning in their late twenties. And it can be kind of subtle. It can be, you know, instead of declining by 1% per year, it might be more like 2% per year, but after 10 years, that's a 20% decline. Um, And so it can really add up. And then for a lot of women, If they have their ovaries removed, as an example, that's a a common source for where you produce testosterone, especially after menopause. And so that can accelerate the decline.
0: Got it. So we're talking about all these hormonal issues and you really lay out a solid, accessible, effective plan in the book. Let's talk about the Godfrey Protocol what what can people start doing? They can obviously read the book to know it fully, but give people an overview of some things they can start doing today to start having agency over their hormone health.
1: Well, there's three pillars to the, the Gottfried Protocol. And these pillars came from my own failed experiments with myself first, because I, I struggled with metabolic health through my 30s and 40s. And so the first pillar is detoxification. Mm. And well, that actually came from realizing when I failed to keto a couple of times that I needed my detox pathways to really be open in order to metabolize the increased fat that I was eating, mostly plant based fat. And then I also realized that for me, you know, we're all kind of these unique human beings where we've got our genes interacting with the environment. And one of the the issues for me genetically was that if I was eating too much animal fat, it was actually worsening my insulin resistance. So I think that's an important thing to figure out. You can figure that out through trial and error. But the thing about detoxification is that it really allows you to make a change with your nutritional plan and to meet it in the middle and to have the best possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. So as an example, you got to be pooping every day. So for people who are not pooping every day, that is the first part. You've got to be able to, you know, get on the toilet, eliminate, feel like, Oh, that was fantastic. You know, like you eliminate completely and it's not, you know, hard. It's not, you've got, you're on the the scale in a way that, you know, really supports your detoxification. And then of course there's the detoxifying food. You know, a lot of our critics of functional medicine will say, Oh, the body detoxes on its own. You don't have to bother with that. Well, I imagine, like me, you've seen that many of your patients actually do a pretty lousy job at detoxification. Either their pathways, you know, phase one, phase two in the liver have gotten junked up, or phase one is too fast, phase two is too slow. And so often there's some modulation that we have to do to open up those detox pathways. So that includes cruciferous vegetables that really help support liver detoxification. I recommend eating, you know, a lot of cruciferous vegetables, the cauliflower, the Brussels sprouts, the broccoli each day, broccoli sprouts, which really helps with estrogen detoxification. And then I also recommend that you get the methylating vegetables. So that's the dark green leafies. A lot of people I usually find also need additional B vitamins to help them with detoxification. You need magnesium, which is such an essential cofactor in detoxification. So that's the first part. The first pillar is to get those detox pathways open before you start to bring in nutritional ketosis, which is the second part. And got then it. the third part is intermittent fasting. I feel like I'm just, I'm like, I don't know, singing your theme song here because you've got books on all of these. <laughs>
0: Hey, that's why we're we're functional medicine siblings, I think.
1: Yes, we are.
0: So patients often ask me, and also listeners of The Art of Being Well, it's a common question that I get, is what healthy snacks do I recommend? Well, first of all, anything that I talk about on this podcast is because it's something that I use personally, or I recommend it to patients, or both. And a healthy snack that I love are the grass-fed beef sticks, from Paleo Valley. You all have to check this out. They are super quality. They're 100% grass-fed and grass-finished meat from domestic regenerative farms. Supporting regenerative farmers and companies that support regenerative farms is very important. We all should be doing more of it. These are a gut-healthy snack. Most meat sticks can upset your stomach or disrupt digestion, likely due to the inflammatory side effects of something called encapsulated citric acid, which is used in most meat stick products. Instead, what Paleo Belly does with these beef sticks is that they naturally ferment them, which creates beneficial probiotics for a balanced, healthy gut and eased digestion. And the flavors are so freaking good. They have original, they have jalapeno with real little chunks of jalapeno. They have summer sausage, they have garlic summer sausage and they have teriyaki. My favorite ones are the jalapeno and teriyaki, but they're all freaking good. Get a variety packs, you can try all of them. So all you have to do is head on over to paleovalley.com, enter code DRWILL, that's D-R-W-I-L-L, at checkout to get your 15% off. Again, that's paleovalley.com. Enter code DRWILL, D-R-W-I-L-L, Dr. Will at checkout to get your 15% off at paleovalley.com. Have you heard of the sound drinks? You have to check these out. They are unsweetened, organic, sparkling waters made with tea and botanicals. They are certified organic and completely unsweetened. My patients love them, I love them as well. They create flavors that are more fun and unique than traditional sparkling waters, like like blueberry with cinnamon, so freaking good, and hibiscus tea, and they also have grapefruit with lavender and ginger, without a doubt, my favorite. They are perfect throughout the day as they have both caffeine and caffeine-free options. They also have BPA-free cans and they use extracts in place of natural flavors. A lot of different canned sparkling drinks can be high in sugar, so that will throw off your energy levels and really give you a crash throughout the day and you won't feel well, basically. And because sugar is inflammatory, it can really throw off lots of different systems in your body. And also, it can really mess up your digestion too. What I really love about Sound is that they're providing us delicious drinks that have real clean ingredients, functional ingredients that you'll enjoy, but also your body will enjoy as well. I love these drinks so much. I really know you will as well. So all you have to do is go to drinksound.com slash Dr. Will Cole. That's D R I N K S O U N D. Drinksound.com slash Dr. Will Cole. That's D R W I L L C O L E. Drinksound.com slash Dr. Will Cole. Use code WILL20 to get 20% off your order. So again, Drinksound.com slash Dr. Will Cole. Use code W I L L 20, the number WILL20 to get 20% off these amazing drinks. Let's go there. I've never talked on the podcast about its connection to hormone health in detail like this. So this is amazing for people to be hearing.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the cool thing is how much food modulates your hormones. I feel like that's a piece that really is missing in the conversation, whether it's the diet culture conversation or, you know, talking about, especially this time of year, how to create the you know, what I would say, create the metabolic health that you want, because I feel like that's the power behind your mission. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a lot of your listeners are mission driven. So you want a good metabolism, regardless of your age and your food is, I've got a food first philosophy. So I think food is so essential for that.
0: So for intermittent fasting, you and I have talked about this before off the podcast, but there's a lot of misconception about about intermittent fasting as we all know. And what's the difference how do you recommend women to do intermittent fasting versus men and what can what are the common pitfalls to intermittent fasting?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So what I've seen clinically is that we know intermittent fasting is a backdoor to ketosis. So if we just take a moment to talk about ketosis, I imagine your listeners know all the ins and outs about ketosis, but the idea is that you're flipping from burning carbohydrates to burning fat, and you want to be able to toggle back and forth between those. That's called metabolic flexibility. And what I see with a lot of my patients is that they get stuck in the burning carb mode. So the key part with intermittent fasting is that it allows you to have more metabolic flexibility. It starts to lower insulin levels. If we just talk for a moment about what intermittent fasting does to hormones, we know that it reduces hunger hormones. So that includes leptin, the hormone that tells you to put the fork down. It also lowers ghrelin, which is the hormone that tells you to pick up the fork again. It's important for cortisol. So it helps with modulating cortisol. But I I think the impact on insulin is probably the most important, but it also raises growth hormone, not excessively, but it raises growth hormone, which is, you know, as it's, uh, you might imagine intuitively, it's a hormone that's involved in growth and repair. It's another one of those anabolic hormones that you make mostly at night, but it goes in and kind of cleans up things in terms of muscle fibers and cells in the body, kind of getting rid of the junk. And it also is important with belly fat, along with insulin and testosterone. So with intermittent fasting, uh, one of the key differences I see is that men get into ketosis more quickly with intermittent fasting. So typically with men, when they're first starting, like a 14-hour overnight fast will pretty consistently get them into a ketotic state where they're producing ketones. Like if you measure it with a finger prick, whereas women often take longer. And I think it's related to our role as, uh, you know, making babies, our fertility role. So women often take more like 18 hours to get into ketosis and you can check this. You can just do an overnight fast of 14 hours, check your ketones, 16 hours, check your ketones, 18 hours, check your ketones. What I find is that for, for people, and this is more the case for women than men, for women who are more carb intolerant, who are kind of stuck in that fat, uh, the, the carb burning mode, it takes longer for them to get into ketosis. And often they have to fast longer initially. But you asked, okay, well, how do you adapt this then for women? What I recommend I usually recommend that you start the detoxification, you get the nutritional ketosis, and then you layer on top the intermittent fasting because for women, when you're already in ketosis, it makes it so much easier to adjust to these longer overnight fasts. So I I like to meet my patients where they are. I've got some patients who, you know, you say, I'd like you to start with a 14 hour overnight fast. I want you to do it twice a week because that's what's associated with improved metabolic health. Uh, then you have a 10 hour eating window. So maybe you're eating from 10 to eight. And so often people will start with that. I have some people who push back and they're like, you want me to stop at eight? Like (laughs) I can't go until 10 o'clock and not eat, you know, what can I have before 10 (laughs) o'clock? And so those people, sometimes I'll start with a 12 hour overnight fast. And then there's some people who can do a 16, eight and find that very easy. So Um, You know, the newest research from Walter Longo out of USC definitely shows that there's some, there's some trade-offs once you get to an overnight fast that's longer than 14 hours. So that's where I think the personalization starts to come in. But tell me, tell me what you've seen, especially men versus women.
0: I, I echo everything that you have you are, are seeing, I mean, we're seeing the same things, seeing the same studies and types of patients. And what comes to mind is that peptin signaling molecule that, I've, that makes women tend to be more sensitive to longer fast. But it's back to that individuality of that sweet spot. It's not either or, fast or don't fast. It's like how, what works for you? long-term and what serves you today, I see because fasting is an amazing therapeutic lifestyle tool, that where it serves you today to improve metabolic flexibility, get blood sugar balanced, low, support lowered inflammation, gut health, et cetera. As those things improve with this therapeutic tool, I find that people then get, find a rhythm with lighter cyclical fasting, which I know you're an advocate for as well. I, get, I guess that's a good segue into this c- conversation of, of ketosis and ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, and then carbs, right? So (laughs) I know you talk about this in the book, we like carbs get a bad rap. But context matters with carbs, right? So what where do carbs fall in the line here? Should we be eating carbs? What type of carbs if we should be? What's your position on this?
1: Yeah, I feel like I hope we have something that we disagree about because I think that makes for, you know, a more fun podcast. I don't think
0: we're going (laughs) to find it here, but we can make something up.
1: Yeah, well, let's (laughs) let's keep looking. So I agree with you. I think carbs are not the villain. And I think there's often some misconception about carbs. You know, some people think of carbs and they think bread, pizza, pasta. When I talk about carbs, and I think also when you talk about carbs, we're talking about the, the carbs that your gut needs to really fuel metabolism, you know, to make short-chain fatty acids, to feed the benevolent bacteria. And so when I talk about carbs, I'm talking mostly about vegetable-based carbs. So the less starchy vegetables, at least initially, when you want to improve your metabolic health, and then as time goes on, what happens is that you usually become more carb-tolerant and so you can consume more carbs without spiking your glucose severely. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to carbs, what I usually recommend for people that are first starting who maybe have some issues with glucose and insulin and some of their other hormones is that you limit net carbs to 25 per day. And for some people who are extremely carbon tolerant, it may even need to be less than 20 per day. And when I first started doing ketosis, Nutritional ketosis about uh, in 2015, and I failed a couple times. The advice at that point was 10 total carbs per day, maybe 20. And that is like nothing. So, what we know happens for a lot of people, and I think this is especially true for women, is that the microbiome, the, the DNA of the microbes in your gut, start to suffer when you restrict carbs so much, you're basically just starving those benevolent bacteria. You're not feeding them the substrates that they need from the vegetable based carbs. So I was also told when I first went on keto that you can't use net carbs. And I'm a big fan of the N of one experiment. So as I tried to modulate the ketogenic diet and came up with this plan that's in this book, What I found is that you can absolutely use net carbs, especially if you're combining the nutritional ketosis with intermittent fasting, it allows you to eat more carbs. Mm -hmm. So we need carbs. I would say women especially need carbs. We probably need them more than men. We need it for sleep, for making serotonin. We need it for appetite. We need it for the microbiome. We need it for thyroid function because if you restrict carbs too much, you get that elevation in reverse T3, which blocks the activity of T3 on cells, that's the biologically active thyroid hormone. So we need carbs. It's just a matter of what's the right dose for you Mm -hmm. and how do we personalize it?
0: Love it. Well said. I, I, we, we can make something up that we disagree on, <laughs> which may be fun for the listeners too, but it would be just a complete skit for everybody. Uh, so let's but shift gears for a moment. Something that that we started talking about before we started recording that I want everybody to hear is this exciting research, and you're such an expert in this field of of knowing this cutting-edge research, of psychedelics. So, can we go there? Ketamine, psilocybin, maybe people aren't even aware of these these terms, but what's the research out there, and and what are some applications you're seeing?
1: Well, the research is really profound. You know, I'll start first by saying, when I first started doing functional medicine, you know, I, I began with kind of the portal of hormone management. And that's, you know, that then opens up this bigger functional medicine world of looking at gut health, looking at all these, you know, the systems biology of how the body works, including mind, body, and spirit. But what I found was that there were some patients who just didn't get better, no matter how much work you do with functional medicine, or maybe they would take two steps forward and one step back. And what I find with a lot of those patients is that they've got a trauma history and I especially see it with patients with autoimmune conditions, you know, Gabor Mate talks about this quite a bit. He's got his book, When the Body Says No, I think I'm quoting that correctly, where, you know, the body, when it tolerates so much trauma, and you're not able to say no to your parents or to your caregivers about what you're experiencing, often the body says no for you. And often it's that It's that pine system. It's that psycho immuno neuro endocrine system that is getting involved in this traumatic kind of stuck state, which can then disrupt your hormones. So you asked about psychedelics. I just wanted to set a little bit of context for it. That's important. So in terms of healing trauma, you know, there's a lot of different ways to heal trauma. When I was in Boston at Harvard medical school, I rotated through the Cambridge hospital I learned a lot about trauma when I was there. And the leading ideas at that point were mostly talk therapy. There was some emphasis on somatic therapy, somatic experiencing. There's integrative family systems, which has developed. And I think Bessel van der Kolk talks be- beautifully about this. He talks also about yoga, his research on yoga and kind of getting embodied again and starting to rewire some of those stuck Concepts that we have about the story of what we've experienced. And then, you know, the rise of psychedelics in the 60s and the 70s, and then it was shut down by the FDA. What we saw is that, in some ways, there's nothing equivalent to psychedelics when it comes to resolving trauma. So, if you just look at people who are diagnosed with the worst trauma, so post traumatic stress disorder, we know that. From the studies looking at MDMA as an example, that we now have phase three randomized trials, one that was just published in Nature a little less than a year ago. You can resolve PTSD with somewhere around 70 to 80 percent efficacy. 70 to 80 percent. I mean, that is enormous and unlike anything we've ever seen in medicine. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we're we're on the cusp of this revolution where psychedelic medicine is going to be a resource that can be utilized. I recommend it only in a supportive therapeutic environment. And right now with MDMA, it's considered illegal in this country, but it can be used for research purposes. So you can work with MAPS as an example, or Johns Hopkins, or even the California Institute of integrative integral studies. Those are some of the places that do research on MDMA with MDMA-assisted therapy. But then there's other psychedelics too. So one is ketamine, which is an anesthetic that's been used for a long time. I've got about 30 years of experience with ketamine, mostly around women in labor who need like emergency cesarean sections. But ketamine is a dissociative medicine that works in a way that melts your defensive structures. And I'm going to sound like I'm from Northern California now as I start to talk <laughs> about this, right? Like, watch out for that. Um, but what happens as you melt those psychic structures, those defensive structures, is that it then allows for this expanded consciousness so that you can really go in with a much more neutral gaze. And look at those traumatic experiences that all of us have had, some to a greater degree than others, and heal them. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this over and over again with my patients that I refer for ketamine-assisted therapy or uh, for those who are part of a research protocol and they take MDMA or psilocybin or even ayahuasca. And I, I have to say there's nothing like it. I think this is the future. I think psychiatry is going to completely change in the next five years. I'm excited for that. I think a lot of psychiatrists are too, but the demand is more than even the trained psychiatrists can handle, which is why I think those of us who do functional medicine also need to know about this.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's exciting stuff. Thanks for sharing that. So as you know, the, the podcast is called the art of being well. So this is the section of the podcast, it's your art of being well. This is Sarah Godfrey's art of being well. I'm going to, it's like semi-rapid fire, but don't be too worried about that. But I'm okay. going to throw throw different questions at you, just your favorite things within wellness. And I'm excited to hear your answers. Are you up for this challenge?
1: Of course, yes, <laughs> All right. bring so, it.
0: First question, you're stuck on an island and you only have one food for survival and nutrient density. What's that food? Avocado. Love it.
1: My <laughs> My landslide.
0: Mine is either coconut or avocado. Okay. Here
1: we are agreeing again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Number two, complete opposite side of the spectrum. You're looking for just purely taste alone. It doesn't have to be healthy or it could be healthy, but just let's say health benefits aside, one food for the rest of your life, purely on deliciousness. What's that food for you?
1: Oh, dark chocolate. I mean, I'm someone who just loves the 95 to 100 percent cacao. So yeah, I just love,
0: love it. it. Any favorite brands that you like chocolate-wise?
1: So I love Hue. That's not you know as high in terms of the percent cacao, but I, you know, I there's a lot of different brands that I like. I tend to support some of the local farmers and like mm-hmm. local purveyors. Um, so I've got a few that I use that are here in California, and I can send a few links to you. Yeah, if you like. we'll put
0: the we'll put the links in the show notes for all of this stuff Great. Um, Great. that you talked about. All right, next question what What are two what are two supplements that have been the biggest game changers for you personally?
1: Mm. Well, first is phosphatidylserine. So right. I love PS phosphatidylserine, serine, I studied it for my first book, The Hormone Cure, because I was someone at that point who just was running around with high cortisol was like three times what it should have been. And I remember talking to a psychiatrist about it who said, Yeah, every female physician I know has a cortisol that's three times what it should be. So phosphatidylserine, serine, I think, has has been the biggest needle mover. But I would also say when it comes to cortisol, we're in such a rush to, to go to the supplements. And I think you can't out supplement a bad diet. You can't out supplement someone who's got high perceived stress. It's a way of kind of lowering cortisol enough so that you're open to the possibility of this more expanded way of taking care of yourself. But that's one. The second is, you know, I recovered from SIBO in 2017. I had a course of antibiotics related to prophylactic mastectomies and I was just a wreck. My microbiome, of course, I science myself. Well, I checked my microbiome before and afterwards, and my diversity went down 87%. Wow. So I would say prebiotics are really the, the game changer for me. I don't have one particular supplement because I like to rotate different ones over time. But the one that I've probably found the most benefit from is I use a medical food that has human milk oligosaccharide in it. So it's derived from human breast milk. Got it. And it's just been one of the best prebiotic uh, sources that I've found.
0: Awesome. What do you have a, can people get it over the counter or can we maybe get the link somewhere?
1: Yeah. Usually you have to get it from a clinician. I think we sell it at Jefferson. So it might be on the store there as a capsule. And then I take it as a shake. Um, So I'll send you a few links on that.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll put it on there. All right. Next question. What's the, what's your latest non-food, non-supplement biohack or wellness tool uh, that you're really into?
1: Oh my gosh. Okay. So I became obsessed with holotropic breathing. Okay. So I'm a yoga teacher. I've been teaching yoga and meditation for a few decades. I'm one of those stress cases who like had to do that in order to (laughs) survive and like stay married and like have kids and, you know, not ruin them. So, um, so I've been doing a lot of different things over the years. I started with TM when I was 17 and in college and I'm doing this work right now with a company called Frequency Mind. I've got no affiliation with them. I just became a member because I went to the A4M conference last year and they had a dome where they taught their breathing technique. And it's a very interesting technique. Holotropic breath work is something that Michael Pollan talked about in his book, How to Change Your Mind, because he was unable to take MDMA because of cardiac condition. And so he did holotropic breath work to get to the same place that you get with MDMA. And it really took him on a journey. So the idea with holotropic breath work is that you're hyperventilating, but at kind of a gentle pace. Can I just demonstrate it real quick?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Yeah. So the idea is that you put your hand, I can't show it on Zoom, but you put your hand on your belly, another hand on your chest, and you breathe in and out through your mouth. So you inhale first into your belly, then chest, and then exhale through your mouth. So it's... So I've been doing this holotropic breath work through frequency mind and I absolutely love it. So it gets me into an expanded state. You do it typically for 22 minutes to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that is my favorite hack by far. I just love it. And it's free. It's It's free.
0: Completely free. I have to learn more about it. I've been in, I'm a novice, very much a novice. I could learn a lot from you in this area. Uh, But I've been in different breath classes for different wellness events. And I've seen people have psychedelic responses, right? The same as, as as using psychedelics. So what's the connection there?
1: It's a really good question. I haven't, you know, my next book is about this. So I need <laughs> to know about this. So I may have to like come back and talk to you about this in about six months where I know the science a little bit better. I think it's something about the hyperventilation and the CO2 that gets you into an altered state. What that does in terms of the pine system, I can't really tell you. Yeah, I think it does something in terms of neurotransmitters. And yeah. that's that's about as smart as I am about it.
0: And I think the, the bigger point here is that this is all new, really. Uh, this There's so much emerging science in this space that in 10 years, we'll know a lot more about the pathways, for sure. Yeah. But we're, we're, we're talking about the most cutting edge stuff that's out there. But yeah, so fantastic. I love it. And I'll definitely learn more about it now. Um, all right. Next question. What's your favorite restaurant in the world and what do you order there?
1: <laughs> okay. This is easy. So I can't eat at most restaurants because of my food intolerances. I've got kind of this long-standing gluten and dairy intolerance, but true food kitchen you know, it was started by Andy Weil. I absolutely love True Food Kitchen. My daughter works there. She's like a lead hostess there. She's 16. And I mean, I eat there so much that it's hard for me to tell you just one thing. But what I really love there is I pretty much always get either the salmon or the steelhead uh, with cauliflower rice. I really like how they flavor it. They tend to be very vegetable forward. So I just get a ton of vegetables together with you know, a side of either salmon or or steelhead, but I also love their edamame hummus. I love their, oh, um, so good, right. I mean, you probably have some favorite things from there too. What are your favorite things? I
0: love that we're talking about true food kitchen. <laughs> uh, Dr. Josh Axe, we need to all go together, like just yeah, a bunch of functional medicine doctors together because we all love it so much, but I, anywhere, cause I don't have one in my like small rural town in Pennsylvania. I don't have one, but whenever I'm in a city that has one, I always try to get there, but I like the spicy Panang curry with Grass fed uh, beef and avocados, add avocados to it, and the cauliflower rice. And I love the edamame guacamole, and I get the gluten free pitas. I make an exception, then I'll get the gluten free pitas there because it's so freaking good. It's so good, and I love all their tincture, uh, their uh, uh, elixirs, and things like this. They got rid of the medicine man, which I'm kind of bummed about that. But the medicine man drink was so good; they they need to bring it back. But
1: (laughs) well, I'll give I'll give my daughter that feedback. But it's uh, yeah, we've got we've got one in Philly, so we'll have to meet up in Philly. Now, the other restaurant that I just want to mention because I. I love it so much as French laundry. So I've French laundry. Amazing. So it's up in Yountville in California. It's in the wine country. And I went with my best friend and our husbands for the first time. And I, I wrote to them ahead of time and I had like my list of food intolerances. And my best friend, Joe was just like, Oh my God, you're like ruining the dinner. And they accommodated <laughs> it. They accommodated it. I mean, they, they made it gluten-free. They made it casein-free and, you know, I love a restaurant that kind of will will work with you in that way. Yeah. You know, they're transparent about what kind of oils they use and how their food is either going to inflame you or not inflame you. I think that's so important.
0: Yeah, it is important. Uh, next question: What's the weirdest wellness thing that you're willing to share on a <laughs> podcast that you've done?
1: Okay, well, I would say probably orgasmic meditation. All right. So why don't we just go there for a yeah, moment let's because go there. it's uh you know I I first met the woman who kind of developed orgasmic meditation Nicole Doan, in the 2000s and she said to me when I first met her listen I I want you to learn this practice I think it's transformative I think it could be really helpful for you and your future patients could I send over two private coaches to your house? And so I asked my husband he was like Hell yes. So <laughs> we learned how to do orgasmic meditation. And you know now, almost 13 years later, what's happening now is that we're doing research at Thomas Jefferson, doing brain scans on pairs, on couples that do orgasmic meditation. What it is, is basically 15 minutes of stroking the clitoris in a very particular way, not designed to kind of send you over into climax, but to get you fully embodied And what we're seeing on the brain scans, we just published our first paper on this, is a tremendous change in terms of functional MRIs, as well as the brain's use of glucose. So using PET scans to measure glucose metabolism, which declines in 80% of women over the age of 40. So we're looking at that specifically at PET scans in women. And then there was just a study from UCLA that was published last fall showing that it really helps with the trauma response. So I think that qualifies as maybe a weird hack
0: in your book. I'm learning so much, Dr. Godfrey. (laughs) This is amazing. All right. Last question, my friend. What's a book that you've read in the last year that maybe got you thinking in a fresh new way that's really inspired you?
1: Mm. If I could give you a couple of categories, because I am a voracious reader, I would say first, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Mm. So I I know I pass as white, but I've got a fair amount of black in my family. And so it feels so important to me that we make medicine, we make healthcare anti-racist. We I feel like we all have to be part of the solution. And I feel like that book provided a roadmap that is unparalleled. Mm. So it really changed my thinking. Every talk I give, I want a through line of anti-racism. I want to make sure that. The biases that we have with the clinical research that we do, especially in the kind of work I do with kind of the gene environment interaction, that we've got diverse data sets and mm. it's not just like more white yeah. uh, data that we're collecting. The second is, um, this is a little bit weirder. So the freedom transmissions, uh, This I, is I, a. have you heard about this?
0: Yes, I have heard about this.
1: So at we have a yes, as a, mutual that's what friend. it is. I heard, yeah, I heard yeah. about her
0: through Elise. So tell me all about it.
1: Yeah. So this is, this is a really powerful book. You know, when I, when I first started in medicine, I've got a great grandmother who taught me yoga when I was a kid and really showed me kind of a, a model of wholeness that I didn't see in medicine in conventional medicine. And so as I kind of followed in her footsteps, I Along with my medical training, I've always looked at, you know, Caroline Mass as an example, and some other leaders in terms of energy and intuitive medicine. So this is a transmission from a 39-year-old woman that lives in Southern California named Carissa, who channels Yeshua. So I don't want to get into too much detail, but I would say my pattern right now that I love so much is that I do the psychotropic breathing and then I read or listen to the freedom transmissions. And that combination has been really potent for me. And then the third book that I've read again is how to change your mind by Michael Pollan, because he's just such a great, um, he's impeccable unparalleled at synthesis Now, he's another white male who's writing about psychedelic medicine. You'll find that um, that's true of pretty much all the authors when it comes to psychedelic medicine. But he's also just such a great teacher and such a great, you know, kind of life adventurer. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really love reading his book. So I've been reading that in preparation for my book and kind of thinking about trauma and autoimmunity and how this fits in. Mm-hmm. And that's been very helpful. Wow. I don't like how one way this is. Like, I want to actually hear your answers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I need to come on your podcast. This is, yeah, tra- there we go. I, I want to learn all about you. This has been great. My friend, I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can people get the book, learn more about your work, all, all the things.
1: So the best place to go is Sarah Gottfriedmd.com. So you can learn more about the book, Women, Food, and Hormones there. There's also bonus content, like a roadmap, how to do the macros, optimal lab ranges, which I think might be helpful for your your listeners. Mm -hmm. And then the place I hang out the most is Instagram. I think you and I were talking before about how I kind of get Instagram, whereas TikTok, I'm still like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> we need to we need to hire our kids to teach us.
1: Yes, we do. We do. I mean, my kids are just like natives; they're naturals at it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> my friend, I'll talk to you real soon. But thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Will. Thanks for all that you do in the world. I just, I just absolutely adore you.
0: Likewise, thank you, my friend. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything and you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Jenna. Jenna asks, hi, Dr. Cole. What exactly is the connection between low vitamin D levels, inflammation, and mold toxins? And where do you want vitamin D to be on labs? All right, this is a big question. I'll try to be as thorough as possible in the time that we have here. So vitamin D, as you intimated, Jenna, it's responsible for thousands of different pathways in the body governing brain function, mood, energy levels, and regulation of the immune system and inflammation. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. So you asked about the connection between vitamin D levels, inflammation, and mold toxins, something that we talk about on the podcast quite a bit, all three of those, nutrients, inflammation, and different things that can drive inflammation, which mold toxins or mycotoxins can drive inflammation. Look at past episodes if you haven't, because we talk about this at length in actually a solo episode I talk about mycotoxins at length. This is something that I see clinically a lot. It's not just about mold toxins, it's about bacteria, viruses, parasites, trauma, chemicals, lots of things can drive inflammation levels. But as far as the research is concerned, there's one study that I'm thinking about. It was published out of the Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, and it was looking at vitamin D and mold toxins specifically. And aspergillus was the mold in the study. And that's something that I see on mycotoxin urine tests a lot and different immune blood tests, aspergillus, dacobatris, different mold toxins that are released from these toxic molds, different like gliotoxin and ocratoxin, these different mold toxins that can drive inflammation levels in the body. Anyways, this study was looking at the connection between low vitamin D and different Th2-mediated pathways. Th2 pathways are basically pro-inflammatory responses in the body. And this, And the researchers found that Adding vitamin D not only substantially reduced the production of these inflammatory proteins, but it also increased the production of the proteins that promote tolerance, basically allowing your body to handle this in a balanced way. So, different people with mold allergies or different inflammatory responses to mold, vitamin D has been found to definitely help the body. And we also know. Vitamin D is the sunshine vitamin, and even getting out in the sun has been shown to help the body's immune system and improve MSH levels. something called melanocyte-stimulating hormone, which we will see low MSH in people that have these chronic biotoxin problems. And biotoxins are released from bacteria, viruses, mold toxins. So the second part of your question is where I like vitamin D on labs. The optimal range, this is the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM's optimal range, is somewhere between 60 and 100. I like it to be 80 to 100 uh, ultimately for most of my patients that are struggling with different autoimmune inflammation issues or struggling with mycotoxins or Lyme disease or chronic fatigue syndrome. So that's what we're shooting for. Uh, personally, I take a 5000 IU of vitamin D3 with a K2. I actually take the, the D3 K2. Um, you can check it out at drwillcull.com. Just go to the shop and then under the collection. That's the, the D3 that I take. Great question, Jenna.